Thank you for joining me for another episode of EK on the Go. Today, we'll be speaking with Christopher Patano, Studio Director for Patano Studio, one of Seattle's revered architectural practices. For those of our listeners who love cities, we have a treat for you today. Chris believes that cities are humanity's greatest creation and that each city is an organism that grows, changes, and adapts. By looking for and within the reciprocal conditions of the city, Christopher is able to see opportunities for a better way for all of us to live. His firm has been featured in many influential trade and popular publications, including Dwell, Architect Magazine, Architectural Digest, and Builder Magazine. Practicing architecture for over 20 years, he's executed projects that include civic spaces and parks, aviation facilities, schools and other educational buildings, factories, corporate headquarters, transportation facilities, including airports, and his work also includes private homes. In addition to his role as studio director, Christopher teaches and is a visiting critic at several Northwest architecture schools. He's also held positions as a visiting professor at Wazoo and as a guest lecturer at the University of Washington and the University of Idaho. Today, we're going to explore the relationship between buildings, people, and nature. We'll look at how buildings in remote rural locations transform that landscape and the people who live there. We'll also explore how the materials that we choose for buildings make a difference for the building, for the environment, and for those who use the building. And stick around. One of Chris's projects is about to be published in Architectural Record. It's literally the publication record of the profession for the past 100 years. Chris will talk about that soon as well. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Edward. So today we're focuses on cities, nature, and buildings. So I'd like to know what city you're from and kind of how you got here. Sure. So I grew up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and we really always had family in the Northwest. Had We had cousins and aunts and uncles in the Seattle area, and I always felt a very strong draw to Seattle, and it really is the metropolitan hub of the Northwest and, and especially where I grew up. So when I finished... My first degree in architecture at the University of Idaho, I moved here directly and uh, started working in the architectural profession. I have a quick question when going up. So you mentioned Seattle was sort of the metro hub. Did you, as a child, come to visit Seattle? We did, yeah. And can I ask you where you came? What were the destinations in Seattle? For me, it was like the in high school, the record stores on the Ave or whatever, but I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, so we had... Since we were visiting family, it was always, you know, a holiday-themed or family-focused trip, but um, there are definitely some iconic memories as a young child walking into the kingdom, for example, first time in Husky Stadium and at the University of Washington uh, walking around, and of course seeing the the skyline as a child. So really the size and scale of the metropolitan area was so different from, um, at the time, Coeur d'Alene was really just a, a logging town that had a little bit of a resort vibe that has obviously changed a lot over the last 30 years. When you were a kid, did you see yourself living in a place like this? Or was there a moment where you sort of thought that you'd want to be out of Coeur d'Alene? And- yeah, I always knew that I was going to live in a city. Uh, I grew up, my father was an architect. So mm. given the rural location that I did grow up in, I, I had this juxtaposition of this exposure of of architecture. And, and that opens up the world. There were always magazines and books and other things around the house that even though as I've realized as an adult, we are about as far away from any cultural center as you could actually be and still be in the United States. Um, we're about 70 miles from Canada. And uh, that awareness and that draw, I think, always inspired me. And I knew that I was going to go live in a city. Chris, what type of architecture did your father design? 
He had a great mid-sized firm in Coeur d'Alene that did mostly um, schools and education projects, although they had a, they had a wide variety of, of project types as well, but they really focused on doing schools. And was there something about your father practicing architecture that was inspirational to you or sort of a path that you sort of discovered on your own? Well, the running joke in the family is my father said, whatever you do, don't be an architect, which is the <laughs> surest way to ensure that your child does <laughs> the opposite. Uh-huh. But, you know, growing up and being in the office and spending time in there, there really is, uh, as you know, there, there are a few things less fascinating than an architect's office. There's uh-huh. just, there's drawings and there's plans and there's models and there's big machines and there's all sorts of, of wonderful things. And so I got to grow up around drafting tables and people doing drawings and running the blueprint machine. And so there was there was an exposure there that, you know, certainly was influential. And are any of his buildings still standing and used today? Yeah, there's, you can go, uh, they did schools in a lot of small towns in Idaho, Washington, Oregon. And so if you drive through any of these towns, Chelan and Tenasket, I'm just thinking some off the top of my head. Um, and then most towns in Idaho, actually, the, there's the, the main school or the high school my dad had a role in. Okay, wow. Good. And then one last piece is I'm just kind of curious, the Palouse, kind of the area south of Coeur d'Alene sweeping towards Spokane is, in my opinion, to me, it's like a neglected quadrant of the state. It's a state, Washington, of many beautiful places yes, with temperate rainforests and coastal beauty and, you know, places that you can ski. But I've been amazed by the number of people in the Seattle area that don't really know the Palouse. Can you describe what that landscape is for you and bring it alive for our listeners who haven't maybe been there yet? Yeah. So, you know, for myself and I think a lot of people in the Seattle area that maybe went to school at the Washington State University, you know, that's an age old destination for college students. The University of Idaho is just eight miles from Washington State University. So it does have this college town history and a lot of people are fortunate to spend some time there and they all almost come away with the same feelings you have of falling in love with it. It is a very unique landscape, and it's as, as someone who grew up in the trees and the rivers and the mountains, it's where the trees and the rivers and the mountains start to feather out, and, and the landscape really changes as you get closer to the Snake River and and those big drainages that come out of the, the mountains of Idaho and Montana. So um, it's just this dramatic, drastic landscape, right? Like yeah. it's 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 covered with grass and the the wheat fields and it's very cultivated now but it's really very dramatic and there's been a lot of almost cataclysmic forces there so I think you feel all that Uh I think you feel what's happened there over time and I spent five years there studying architecture and then we were always kind of in and out just based on where I grew up and the southern tip of Lake Coeur d'Alene starts to get into that edge of the Palouse so um, the landscape changes quite a bit but it was an interesting feeling that I have is the only other place that I've ever been that has the light of the Palouse. And I think one of the things about the Palouse that's really interesting is it's the quality of light, the way that filters through the dust that's in the air, just the hills, the mountains, the trees, is actually Tuscany. Huh. And you don't have to go too far to realize like how many painters <laughs> were influenced by that light quality of Tuscany and that same sort of landscape in Tuscany. I mean, Tuscany is these very sharply undulating hills. It's just they happen to all have little towns on top of them because it's been habitated for a lot longer. But um, the drama, the undulations, the quality of light is all very similar. And um, so I I think that resonates with people. Well, you were kind of walking us through your journey 
through educational path into Seattle, and then you can just share how you wound up here. Yeah, so it just came to mind, but in undergrad studying architecture, there was a design competition that they often have for students, and it was for a project called the Seattle Commons at the time, which Paul Allen was looking at developing South Lake Union. And in retrospect, looking back, let's hear that design competition was probably like 1993, so we're 30 years beyond. Looking back 30 years, um, it's a series of very quaint decisions when you when you look and see what's happened there now. But um, at the time, of course, it was still really underutilized, underdeveloped part of Seattle, north of downtown, but south of Lake Union. So they had a student design competition just as far as what to do with it. And... Um, it was paralleled with the actual movement in Seattle to build a park. And it was you know, our equivalent of Central Park. And they were going to do development around the edges. And Paul Allen was basically saying, we'll pay for the park. This is what we'd like to do. And Seattle has a long history of saying <laughs> no through the ballot box to very good things. We didn't want the subway system in the 70s, so Atlanta got it. We didn't want the Seattle Commons. We voted it down. So we got all the development and none of the park. So in retrospect, that might have not been the, the best decision. But, um, you know, clearly South Lake Union has transformed the city, and it sure. is, is a wonderful place. Uh, there's a lot of different strategies to create public space within these developments, but I think missing out on the, the large park was was an opportunity, but that planted a seed in my head. So we, anyway, we did this competition, our team from Idaho, we, we placed second. And so we got published and won some money and it was all very exciting. But I uh -huh. think that was another call to Seattle because we just learned a lot about the city working on that project. And uh, fast forward to about six or seven years ago, we actually, Patano Studio and our staff, we did a proposal that was based on the Seattle Commons that led to what we call the Seattle Cap, which was a proposal to cover I-5 through downtown with a 2.2-mile park and also integrate a lot of cultural amenities and housing and even an arena and even a convention center, but more importantly, heal that connection and that scar through the city. Uh -huh. um, and that project took on a life of its own. And Well, I saw the images online. I mean, it's an absolutely beautiful vision of that space. Um, you mentioned the scar that sort of damaged the city. So what was the scar and why did it happen and what did it do to the neighborhoods around it? Sure. So in uh, in the frenzy of building the, the federal interstate system in the 60s, we had to have interstates and cities were growing, the country was growing, car popularity was growing. Um, but a, a unique result that we found in our research was all the established East Coast cities all got ring freeways, right? The freeways stayed around the traditional historic center, and then there were little off-ramps and other ways to get into the central city. I think the West Coast, lacking political power and maybe even much uh, understanding of what was out here, they put the freeways right through the middle of the city. Um, so in Seattle, they bought six blocks wide through the historic center of the city and they demolished it. In fact, I was just reading, they displaced 40,000 people huh. to build I-5 through downtown. You can imagine, can you imagine now yeah. 
taking the homes of 40,000 people away. So it, it really severed the city from the downtown and waterfront to the west and Capitol Hill and some of the cultural centers to the east and a lot of the, the earliest neighborhoods. To the north, also Maple Leaf you know, and, yeah. and Green Lake, that was like one merger onto this lake, this beautiful man-made lake, and then it was just broken up with that I-5. And go to the south. I mean, it, it did the same and, and it went right through the heart of Tacoma and right through the heart of Portland. And so um, as a contrast, you can look at Vancouver, BC. They did not let the freeway, different country, of course, but they did, they did not want a freeway cutting through their city. So there's a glorified arterial that goes into the city. It seems to work just fine and the major interstate goes around. So so yeah, so if you're a, an urbanite or even just somebody visiting the city of Seattle and you're walking around, you often find yourself suddenly on an over-ramp above an eight-lane freeway with all the noise and pollution and and wonder what happened. And it's really not very pleasant. So um, Seattleites have been dealing with that for decades. And there's now a huge movement to to cover it up. And the slope of the land and the grade is an issue. And there's certain places that you can and can't do it. There's several places where it's above the city and that uh, the, that gets a little more difficult. But there's a little over a two-mile stretch that you could cover and uh, reclaim as parkland and other things. So, and it, you know, I'll freely admit, not a unique idea. One of the biggest movements in the world right now is to cover these urban freeways. They're doing it, I think, in 500 cities around the world. There's proposals or actual projects to repair the damage that was done for all the reasons that we all understand. So one of the things that when we were um, talking earlier was just that, that your practice is really a mixture of architecture and landscape architecture. It's, those are two practice areas that are kind of equally important and balanced in, in the work that you do. Part of it is a lot of the projects, it seems like they're public spaces, outdoor spaces. Mm -hmm. But I'm just wondering, you know, is it a false distinction? Like they'll say health and mental health. Well, mental health is health, right? Is landscape architecture in terms of how you approach it, it seems like it's holistic and... I'm just wondering how you address the, maybe the distinction between those two practice areas as it shows up in the work that you do. And is there a, some merger integration of maybe different practice areas? Sure. So the mission that we defined is, as you mentioned at the introduction, is building nature. And it's it's a mindset for us. Like, how do we think about constructing? And, and actually, when you build a project, there's a lot of undoing and damage before you put it all back together. But it's a guiding principle for us. And in a lot of that is rooted in this idea of integrating the building with the landscape. And so while landscape architecture is a completely separate discipline from architecture, uh, there's a way that the two obviously can talk to each other and then do more than talk to each other, but actually start to, to integrate and play off each other. So we take the landscape part of any site that we get to work on very seriously and we look at how the landscape can become part of the building and how both the building and the landscape can be the experience for the visitor. So I was just on the call yesterday with some landscape architects that we love to work with and they were talking about just the difference that between an architects that they work with where some architects the building just dominates the site and it's a big thing and they get the edges and the leftovers, and they still do wonderful work, but it's it's a completely different mindset. Where we were talking with them from day one of how do we how do we weave the building and the landscape together, and what does that mean? It seems like a lot of your projects going through your website are erasing or sort of merging the boundaries between land and water, mm -hmm. and and maybe that's just because you work in a lot of public spaces that are parks, and maybe parks are by water. But it seems like there's more to it. It seems like there is some 
it's this interstitial space. I know historically with, you know, pre-settler peoples, you know, the water and the land was where the food was, where you lived, where transportation. So it had a lot of utilitarian benefits. And my sense is that as development occurred um, in the last 150 years, the value of it was lowered in terms of, you know, in- industry was put yeah. in these spaces. And it seems like a lot of the projects that you're working on are kind of clearing that away and then merging that interstitial space, Yes, you know, weaving it together. And maybe you could talk about a, maybe what is the role of water in our landscape in the Pacific Northwest? And then B, maybe drill down on the, the Juanita Beach Park or something where we could talk about maybe a specific case where you took that on strategically and then what the result was. Sure. So, you know, of course, from an urban design perspective across the United States, all the cities turned their backs to the waterfronts, whether it was New York or Philadelphia or River Cities, um, Louisville or other places. And so they were just in industrial back of house, you know, a lot of pollution and other things like that. So the waterfronts clearly weren't prized. And so that was just a, a part, I think, of America, American city building. The way you're describing it, it's almost like a back of house. It's the dump. It's mm-hmm. the industrial back of house where you dumped all your stuff. Maybe you got water to cool machines. Yep. And that was it. Yeah. I mean, and even worse, it was your sewer and it was your trash removal service and whatever the water could carry away. But then I think it, it takes on a lot of different layers in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, as you know, water is is magical here, and it's, it's very, very special. And while the cities did a lot of the same things, turned their backs to the waterfront, or the waterfront maybe wasn't the most desirable place, I think more here than in other places, the water maintained a special nature, right? It's, a, it's, it's, it's magic. It's where people could go. There were always lakes and rivers that people in the Northwest could go to in the summertime, and so it wasn't only just industry, but it was also a lot of recreation. So I think we kept it in a little bit higher priority here. But that being said, there were still a lot of sites that maybe they even were public parks, but they were underutilized or or established a long time ago and in need of a refreshment. So a lot of our projects were either dealing with working in old old parks like Lake Sammamish State Park that's on the south end of Lake Sammamish that um, had essentially been... I don't want to say abandoned, but it was heavily underutilized, especially the waterfront. But we built a new uh, bathhouse building there, and part of that project was rebuilding the beach and a promenade and some other improvements in the park. And now families and a lot of different um, groups that live on the east side, and it's really fun. You'll hear a lot of different languages there now, and there's lots of space for gathering, and, and it's really become a very active place. Um, so I think that a big part of that, Edward, um, and the project types that we work on, you stand up and you interview for public projects and you do presentations. And clearly when you're talking about something that you understand and you really believe in, you're more authentic. And so I don't think it's an accident that I grew up on lakes and rivers surrounded by trees and we're working on a lot of projects that are you know, at the edge right. of the water and sure. And it's a priority, but um, but they're very special projects and very desirable to work on, and we really do enjoy it. And then what about the buildings that, that you design in those spaces? It seems like you're creating more transparency, more openness, and that the buildings are not really blocking views or rockets, but anything you can do to share how you approach the building piece? Yeah, so uh, you know, we start again with this notion of building nature and how do we integrate the buildings and the landscape. And there's a lot of different um, approaches that we've implemented. Um, Lake Sammamish, we 
put out there that we wanted the building to look like it had been there for 100 years and to literally grow back into the site. So we have an intensive planted roof on top, which means that it's not like four inches of soil, it's 12 inches of soil, and it, it grows very large bushes, and, and the building itself is quite long, but we cladded it with a reclaimed uh, redwood siding that we got out of a 100-year-old dam in California, and we put that siding on the new bathhouse and then didn't treat it so that it would just age, and it'll still last another 100 years, but it, it grays out and just, again, looks like it's been there forever. And then these ideas of these apertures and these openings where you can see through the building and see the landscape and see the lake. So that was a strategy there. And that really informed our work and helped us push it forward with this idea of finding locally sourced materials, Pacific Northwest materials, and really starting to put out there, like, can we think about how we build the same way we think about a fine gourmet meal or wine or, you know, there's a lot of examples out there where it actually is important where the materials come from and it's, it's important how you put them together. And so we've developed specifications, but I think more importantly, like an, an ethos of let's find out where the wood comes from. Let's put directions in our drawings and specifications that it's going to have to be sourced locally. Are there fabricators and systems, and there are in the Northwest with this, with the mass timber movement, where we're now taking one of our most plentiful and valuable resources, which is wood fiber, and we're turning it into these large prefabricated panels. And we can, you know, now erect 20, 30 story tall buildings if we want to, or we can build smaller buildings like what we did at Juanita Beach Park for the city of Kirkland, where we use CLT panels for the, the new picnic pavilions, which are just these concrete frames. But because we use these... What, what does CLT stand for? Yeah, so it's cross-laminated timber. So they basically take two-by-fours, two-by-sixes, two-by-dimensional material, and they layer it like you would think layering plywood. They lay them all out one, one direction, and then they flip the direction. So you start getting these panels that are three and a half inches thick, five and a half inches thick, seven and a half inches thick, but they can be eight feet wide, they can be 60 feet long. Huh. And they have tremendous structural capacity. Um, they're very good from a fireproofing standpoint and they've got a lot of other. Why is that? Because you think wood would be a dangerous material. Exactly, and it's a perception that we fight a lot. In fact, I might've just lost a job because I was, perfor- <laughs> <laughs> I was promoting building it all out of locally sourced Idaho forest products. And I, I think that the client might've thought that their building was gonna burn down. It's a, it's a perception. People still think of wood as cheap. They think of it as um, residential construction, stick construction, two by four construction. But with the new prefabricated panels and mass timber movements, these are very sophisticated pieces of you know building technology. And the analogy for fire and fireproofing and protection is simply if you have a fire in your fireplace, if you throw a big log on it, what's it going to do? It's just going to smolder. For a long time, yeah. And heavy timber in buildings and these big, thick wood panels, they don't burn. I mean, they, they kind of smolder uh, even in very high temperatures. They're, they're getting two, three-hour fire ratings. Um, whereas steel, you have to fireproof it. And uh, I'll always remember my, my structural professor you know, talking about steel structures. Steel's awesome. It's It's strong, it's efficient, that's why we build all our biggest buildings out of it, or at least we used to. 
I think we'll be building all of our biggest buildings out of wood now moving really? forward. Yeah. Okay. Are there examples of that that you can point to that are bigger size buildings that have been made out of wood, whether or not in Seattle? Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of European examples um, where there's 20, 30 story tall wow. residential towers that are getting built. I think Vancouver, BC is on that track. Uh, Portland, Oregon was working, I think, on an 18 story tower, but... The engineering's out there. SOM did a study for a tower in Chicago. I, I think it was a 60 or 70 story tower all out of wood. So one benefit I would assume is with steel, it's probably has have a heavy carbon footprint. A lot of energy goes steel, into Steel, yeah. It. So massive carbon footprint for steel and the production of steel, and, which is why we're trying to get away from it in our, our office. But also um, steel, if there is a fire, it's called a sudden and total failure. So steel is strong until it gets to a perfect temperature, you know, until it gets to that 1100 degrees or so, and then it just, you know, it just pancakes. And these wood structures, um, they can handle that high heat and they can get, you can get everyone out and they're a lot more resilient. So, so we always ask our guests to bring in an object that matters to them. And I see a big chunk of wood here on the table. So what is that? This is a, a piece of old growth fur. You can tell by the, the closeness of the rings. And if you were to pick it up, uh, <laughs> It's quite heavy. Oh, wow. But, um, but it, it links in. So we reclaimed that from um, a Palouse barn, actually. Huh. So I don't know if that came from a forest in Idaho or if that came from a, you know, a cascade logging operation at the turn of the century. But that had been in a barn in the Palouse in eastern Washington and was salvaged and recut. And uh, we used it for an interior application for a coffee roaster. But... We use a lot of reclaimed wood and, you know, that's just a, a second life. So wood is so beautiful, right? Because it has this life. You can see the rings. It mm -hmm. has time um, in a way that maybe steel and other materials don't. So with this mass timber construction, is it able to function in an aesthetic way where it is allowed to be wood or is it covered or wrapped with some insect or fire retardants or? Yep. Yeah. It's a good question. So um, the codes are catching up. And a lot of the mid-rise mid buildings that are all wood, mass timber, so say five to seven stories, uh -huh. you can expose most of the wood. Nice. The exterior, of course, needs a weatherproof, durable siding material on the outside. But on the inside, you can have a majority of the wood exposed. Is wood in insulative in a way? that it, A better way to put it is it is not a thermal bridge like steel. Okay. So it is insulative, but more importantly, um, when you have steel structures, all those connections from the inside of the building to the outside of the building, which there are many, just become these thermal bridges that telegraph heat and cool into the building. But if you have a, a wood envelope, it really doesn't do that. Well, I'm struck by how technology can be applied to these new materials mm -hmm. to be able to sort of perfect them. And then zero energy buildings. Can you tell us, Chris, what are they and, you know, why should we care? Yeah. So there's a lot of different programs out there, but let's just use the 2030 challenge, which we were original signatories for, which was a goal to have carbon neutral buildings by 2030. So that is both in their construction and in the energy that they use. So carbon neutrality, uh, we're getting very close to that. We've had several of our buildings meet the 2030 challenge. It's especially appropriate in the Northwest because we have a significant portion of our energy grid is, is hydropower. And so we, we have a very carbon, a low carbon energy grid versus other parts of the country or the world. But that being said, you still have to really think about how you put the building together, how much energy it uses, 
and what kind of energy that is. So net zero energy building, you're basically saying this building and its site is going to make all of the energy it uses. So you can do that in a couple different ways where like during the summer, if you have a photovoltaic array, you're going to be making way more energy than the building can actually use during the day. But you sell that back to the utility and you know, basically at the end of the year, you tally everything up and you try to come out on the positive side. So it's essentially photovoltaics. It's a, it's a very insulative, thermally isolated building and, and energy skin, good windows, um, good good air quality and ventilation, and then just really smart mechanical and electrical systems. LEDs helped a lot with that because you know your plug, what you call your plug load, and then your building load for electricity. Um, those have all come down a lot, just as our uh, lighting and other appliances have gotten more efficient as well. But yeah, so the goal is to have a building that you know makes all the energy it needs. So I just noticed it was about two weeks ago. General Motors announced that they're going to within. 2030, they'll be all electric. They're not building. Mm-hmm. Um, are we in a mode where we could head into all, where all new buildings would be zero energy buildings? Almost. There's some sites where it's difficult. You know, you can imagine like a very urban site where you just can't get the photovoltaics that you need to make energy. But there's other ways to do it. Um, there, uh, Passive House, if you've heard of that, is a building physics approach to building where you super insulate the building, you pick triple paned windows, you do a couple other things um, with thermal bridging, as I've mentioned earlier, but you can actually make a residence that doesn't need a furnace. So you can come at it from two directions, right? Like you can come at it and, okay, this is how we're going to make energy on our building, make energy on our site, and that's going to bring us to that zero number. But you can also come at it like, we're just going to drastically reduce how much energy our building needs. Gotcha. And then it's a lot easier to square that up and, and, and head to zero energy. So yes, to answer your question, I think we're going to definitely head there. Car- Seattle just passed, Seattle City Council just passed, joining San Francisco. Uh, I don't want to call it a ban, but basically you can't use natural gas in commercial buildings anymore. You know, that's great. We, we don't need it. We have this great hydropower resource um, in the Northwest. All electric buildings is a huge movement. Um, I think we're designing our fourth all electric building now. That gets you a long way there. With the heat pumps have gotten really, really efficient, gotcha. and they can work in colder temperatures. So now you've got these incredibly efficient heat pumps that are running on electricity in a very well insulated building envelope and. LED lights, and you know, now you're, you're talking about a fraction of the energy that a building even maybe 10, 15 years ago would use. So architecture is heading into you know, more of a sustainable model, and a lot of this is the technology, materials, and things like that. But also what I'm, I find fascinating in your work is that you use a lot of these new technologies in really fun kind of aesthetic ways. And I noticed the Salerno Telecom Tower as just it had, it, you know, it was a functional thing, but it was absolutely beautiful <laughs> uh, and sculptural. Yeah. Can you we tell had fun us, with that one. Tell us about that project. <laughs> yeah. So we've entered some design competitions over the years, and it's something that just keeps us, you know, keeps us fresh, and it's nice to work on some, some different ideas in some different locations. We picked that one out, Salerno, Italy. Uh, most European towns have these collections of their um, communications, towers and satellite dishes and other things. Usually they're in a 
one location. Um, huh. And some of them are quite famous in some of the cities in Europe. The, the transmission towers are actually an icon. Huh. And Salerno was reconfiguring theirs, and it was on top of this series of parks that go up from the city to this hill. And we thought that So would a lot be... of these towers are located also in very iconic locations yeah. by virtue, because they sort of physically functionally need to be very high. Yep. So it's, yeah. it's sort of... So they were rebuilding theirs, and they just had a competition to see what people thought of that and what they might design. So, we, yeah, we designed this uh, exoskeleton to cover up the towers and the dishes and other things, and it was an LED-lit skin that could change. So they could, if they're having a big soccer match, they could, you know, show the colors of Salerno's soccer team or... They have a pretty big tourist industry there. Certain festivals okay. and other icons that you know they could they could adapt it. So it was a, it was a fun fun exercise. Oh, I'd love to see something like that on the top of First Hill or Queen Anne Hill at those towers because they're an eyesore. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> so we could learn. Yeah, from, yeah. They take yeah. that more seriously. Yeah, good. Well, I wanted to I have a note here to talk about what I'm calling parachute projects. So you know, you grew up in Idaho. You've moved to Seattle, but obviously, a lot of your firm's work. You know, Hagerman, Idaho, Riverside Cabins, Spokane, Coeur d'Alene, Mathau Valley, Latvia, apparently you've designed something. So it seems to me your practice is all about kind of listening to the landscape and being very sensitive. But yet some of the projects, you know, the Goldendale Observatory, which I'd like to talk about, because mm-hmm. it's just very fascinating to me that you're designing, you know, something with that sort of interstellar kind of context. You're Seattle-based, but your work spans the globe. And it seems to me in for a practice whose kind of philosophy is really listening and paying very close attention to the landscape, it may be more challenging in areas that where you're not in all the time. How do you listen to the landscape, get queued up, and also the people there when you're not like part of that community during the time of design and construction? Sure. So clearly you're you're right on track in the sense that right out of the gate we wanted to be a regional firm and even, you know, a global firm just because there's a lot of beautiful places and it's fun to travel and it's fun to work and sure. in different places. And there's a lot of uh, just interest, the wider, you know, culture of the globe. But um, there's also just connections to different parts of the Northwest as well. So, you know, zeroing in a bit just to the Northwest, we've always been happy to travel and to go work in places that were several hours or more of a drive. And, um, I think it's a nice change of pace and balances out work in the city. They're just different and uh, different priorities and I think different client groups. And as we all know, permitting in a large city is sometimes an exhaustive process and there's a lot of steps that you have to go through and those are mostly all good. Um, But sometimes it's really refreshing to work in a community that is just, they haven't built a building in 50 years and they're not going to build another building for 50 years. And this is the most important thing that any of them have ever done. And they're just completely committed to it. And it it means the world to their town and their community. And they fully support it. And, you know, there's state agencies, local agencies, they just come up to you and say, what do you need us to do? (laughs) You know, it's, it's just, it's exciting to see people get excited. But Taking it back to the landscape, you know, you always need to, you travel there, you you start walking around, you start looking at what's there. We've always had, or I've always had like this, this tie to what's the geology, what's the land, what's the history, not just the human history, but before human history. And, you know, again, I think that's a result of, of growing up in the Pacific Northwest where we have such dramatic 
landscapes and, and geology and stories and of, of what's happened before there were ever people around. And so we let that inform a lot of how we think about it. And the, the Lake Sammamish bathhouse is on this floodplain of the creek that comes in there, and we wanted it to be like the layers of the sediment deposits. And the, so the siding is mm. reminiscent of that. Um, the Thousand Springs Visitor Center in southern Idaho is in the Snake River Valley just outside of Hagerman, Idaho. It's under construction right now, and the Snake River Valley is an amazing landscape, and you have these basalt cliffs that are in some places more dramatic, some places less dramatic, but they create this, you know, kind of this two-walled beast that goes through all of southern Idaho from the Wyoming border all the way up to where, you know, when it gets through Hell's Canyon and where Washington, Oregon, and Idaho meet, which is the heart of the Nez Perce um, country. And then, of course, you've got this river running through it. So, so that, that geology and that timelessness is, is really key. So we tried to tap into that for the Thousand Springs project. And it's a very simple building, but we just highlighted these, these two walls that all the program occurs in between. And those walls are prominent and they're slightly canted and they're just a little special. But it's just playing off these basalt cliffs that are, are the story of, of the Snake River. And Thousand Springs, the reason it's called Thousand Springs is uh, several rivers that come out of the, the big mountains of Idaho and Montana, they, they run into these lava flows that comprise most of southern Idaho, and they just disappear. These rivers go away, and they emerge three, 400 miles later, just shooting out of these canyon walls. And so it's just, a, it's almost made up, right? It's uh-huh. so spectacular. Uh-huh. So that's an example there. Um, Goldendale Observatory for Washington State Parks, which is down in southwestern Washington, while it has a tremendous location perched on top of this hill just north of, of Goldendale, as an observatory should be, um, and it has these views of this pretty unique part of the state of Washington down to the Columbia River, and you can see Mount Hood in the distance as well. But, um, you know, clearly when you're designing an observatory and it houses one of the largest um, publicly accessible, which means you can actually go put your eye. If you go visit there, you can take your kids and they can look through the telescope. So most telescopes aren't accessible. Do you know if Golden Idol is open? We, I actually wanted to head over there with my family before we uh-huh. did, um, but it wasn't open at the time. Do you know if it is currently it's, open to the They're public? following the state's, you know, opening yeah. mandate. So because there's a presentation room and, and other interpretive components that are, you know, groups of people, they're going to have to phase it in. But as soon as the governor says that, you know, state uh, facilities like that can open, they'll open back up. Yeah, but, so that could be a great trip just for our guests to head yeah. out there over the summer. Likely will be open to the public and you can check out Chris's work. but Exactly. Yeah. And the drive, if you do the drive right, you can hit uh, wineries on both sides of it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's a really amazing landscape because the next stop from Goldendale, you go down to the Columbia River. But, um, Just bring a designated driver. Exactly. Well, <laughs> you need to stay a few days. So you do the wine tasting the day before, and then you can then you can go see the observatory. And the unique thing about designing an observatory, and as I learned, running an observatory is unlike almost everything else we might design or you even think of public facilities, that it's open at night. I mean, it is open during the day and they do daytime programming, but really you want to visit at night. Uh-huh. And in the summertime, that's not till 10. So yeah. they, you know, they run from 10 till one or two uh, for particular viewings and other things, which is a unique experience for sure. 
But um, for Goldendale, as we were mentioning, for the observatory, we had all this great landscape influence, but um, clearly for that one, all you had to do was look up, right, because of, of what the mission of the observatory is and the, the telescope and observing our solar system. And, and they, they, their interpretive program is really good, and they really bring it all home. The new interpretive content that was part of our project um, starts with Carl Sagan's notion that we're all made of stars. And the seating is all arranged in the periodic table and the daytime presentations start linking how stars make these elements and how when the universe is being formed, these elements were made. And when stars explode, these you know particular elements that are in our bodies were expelled out into the universe and you know so on and so forth until here we are talking about it. But it's just that linkage and, you know, really there can't be a more important time than for us to study science and study our place in the solar system and the universe and understand where we are and where we're at. And it was these motions of our planets and we think of orbits as circular, but they're actually elliptic and less regular than we think and, and gravity is doing all these crazy things. So it really influenced the design for the building, which is essentially, it's an ellipse and a circle. Uh, the ellipse is the programmatic space for the presentation space and public gathering and other things. And then the circle is where we, we enclose the original observatory structure with the dome and the, the big telescope. Uh-huh. And the telescope was completely rebuilt. The new mirror was installed. And then we have a new gathering and entry space as well as all the landscape and trails. And there's little circular gathering spaces outside for the amateur astronomers to set up their telescopes and have viewing parties and other things outside. This is so great to hear. It was an amazing yeah. project. Yeah. yeah. So kind of when I was listening to you earlier, we were just talking about how, you know, landscape is so important. And I was just kind of thinking of Charles Darwin and, you know, that he had this discipline of creating sketches in order to sort of tease out what's true in the universe and right. And, and so I was just kind of wondering, you, in working in these remote areas, you have to go out and just very carefully observe the landscape because you're highly committed. Your mission is to make sure that the building and the landscape speak to each other, right? Just like Darwin's theory of evolution was really based on a very, very carefully wrought sketches of all the natural wonders, right? And yeah. so I was kind of thinking, like, what is your sketchbook or what is the discipline that you use to get present? But it just occurred to me that the architecture itself, that these buildings that you're designing whether it's the materials or the sort of touches in there, they are sort of the sketchbook. They sort of reflect in many ways, the landscape, just all the different moves that you've made in designing them. Yeah. And there's all the things that you can see, but I would say that a big influence on my work personally is trying to find those things you can't see. And I'll, I'll definitely credit uh, when I was at graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, I took a design studio from Perry Culper who was teaching at Penn and taught at SciArc, and he's at University of Michigan now. But uh, he was doing this experimental studio about how do we draw and design what we can't see. And so here, here's this Idaho guy who lived in Seattle, and then I went to Philadelphia to get my East Coast fix and get a master's in architecture. And the first studio I take, we get on airplanes and fly all the way back out to the West Coast to Death Valley, essentially, and just north of Death Valley in, um, in California to this very small town, which is very much like a town I grew up in. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm back out in the middle of nowhere. But it was interesting because 
it really started to open my eyes that it, it wasn't the middle of nowhere. And there was all, the, all these systems that were going on, whether it was the Falcons in the air or there was a Japanese internment camp on site. The water from L.A. came out of this valley. So it was, it was learning to see what is there but isn't so readily apparent and how does that influence architecture and space making and how we think about just not only just buildings but landscape as well. And so that was a, a formative experience. And it was also really interesting to be out back where I was comfortable in the West under these you know massively clear, starry skies, but to be there with a bunch of colleagues from the East Coast. Uh-huh that had never seen the stars mm. and they had never been out in such a remote location. And so it was, it was just kind of putting some puzzle pieces together for me that I think um, were, was very beneficial in the long run. Amazing. When I'm out in the kind of Lapway area, the landscape, because my family's in this purse, there's all these foundation stories that, that my wife's grandfather will tell that are about kind of animals that our ancestors but then it shows up in the landscape through all the rock formations. Yeah. So it's just the stories of the landscape are your culture yep. rather than nature, you know, yeah. in, in the way of maybe a non-native might think of nature as something separate that. from themselves. But it's the built environment is actually your ancestral comfort zone and kind of who you are. So it's, and, and a lot of the work, what I see is that you're also looking at the sensory, the non-intellectual, non-conceptual pieces. It's a sensory experience that the user of the architecture of the buildings experiences just like when I'm along the Snake River walking by these formations it's you know it's the sound of the wind as yeah. it hits those shapes that look like animals crawling up the side of the mountain that were frozen in time you know, I think it's it's, it's elemental we try we, we strive for that elemental experience and I, I think that you know similar to what you're describing um, my grandfather was a, a logger and a miner and he would take me out and we would you know, go for walks and I'd have to identify the trees and know what they are. And, you know, we'd cut down trees and skin logs and do other things like that. And I will admit that when I'm thinking of how we're detailing a building or how we're putting the materials together, I've mentioned the local, locally sourced materials and how critical we think that is in the long term of just building cities and making places for humans to do what we need to do, but in a much more sustainable way. But um, a secondary level to that is I do try to think about well, how would my grandfather build it? And it was simpler versus more complex. Mm-hmm. And I think we can do modern, but it doesn't have to be completely overwrought. And that's what we're striving for is how do we have a clean modern experience or something that maybe resonates a little bit more through the materiality? But, um, you know, it's not, it's not the most complicated. It occurs to me your interest in these materials does have to do with their elementality as well as other, you know, technically they're more sustainable, mm-hmm. um, but there's an elementality to them that are closer to who we are as hunter-gatherers or whatever yeah. people that lived among trees, you yeah. know. And, yeah. And if we want to keep doing what we're doing, we need to, well, not doing what we're doing, but if we want to keep continuing the human experiment, we need to figure out how to work with the materials that we always worked with. And I mean, you think about it, we had buildings that had no artificial light, not really any heat other than maybe a fireplace here or there, uh, and no other systems for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And and while I think we can, we don't have to give up comfort. We have the technology, we have the knowledge. We can We can build buildings that are just as comfortable as we have now and just as efficient, but in a way that, you know, me, 
we have this idealized notion of why can't we build a building that doesn't have any lights and no heating? And, you know, mm-hmm. like we're almost there. Mm-hmm. Why, why can't we? Mm-hmm. And so then if you start there as a maybe unattainable goal and you end up just slightly under it, I think you've done really well. So uh, a place that matters to you in the Northwest. There's so many. Um, just pick one. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I came in because uh, I came in with Lake Union in mind because I think Lake Union is this amazing intersection of urban, you know, the urban condition in Seattle, but it's it's still this old logging lake, right? And it was full of log booms and and other early, you know, industries when Seattle was settled. So even now, you go out there, I feel like in Lake Union. You get a little bit of everything. You've got the city butting up to its south edge. You've got the biotech on on the eastern shore. You've got the university on its northern shore. Um, you've got Gasworks Park, which is literally, I think, one of the most iconic parks anywhere in the country. We're doing a project. We're doing a very small project in Gasworks Park right now. What is it? Um, we're making the what's called the east entry, but it's essentially the main way in. We're making it accessible. So we're putting a new walkway that's at the proper slope so that you can get from the parking lot down to the park. But in addition to that, we're demolishing the, in architectural terms, a restroom in a park is called a comfort station, Okay, which is kind of an inside joke. But we're demolishing the existing comfort station, which was built when the um, park was originally built, and uh, we're building a new one. Okay, But to do a new building inside of landmarked Mm-hmm. Gasworks Park mm-hmm. has been quite the process with yeah. the Seattle Parks. It's been great, but it's taken many years. We're close to building permit. Um, we had to go through design review, and there were a lot of other really great experiences. Um, we actually got to meet with uh, Richard Haig, who uh, designed Gasworks Park, and showed him our plans, and he just was this amazingly dynamic guy. I can see why he had so much success. But he looked at our plans and what we were proposing, and he was like, well, that just makes everything better. I mean, Aww. he just was like, yeah, let's let him do it, you know? And then it turned out Gordon Walker had designed the original comfort station. Uh, and so I had wine with Gordon, and I'm like, hey, Gordon, what do you think? And he's like, tear it down. <laughs> I, only spent, <laughs> I only spent like five minutes designing it anyway, but it's landmarked, right? Uh-huh. Because it's in the right. park, so... Right. So we got those. Does that carry weight if the original designers say tear it down? It doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> hurt. Yeah, okay. it doesn't hurt. We we did submit both letters um, as part of the review process, and then we're designing a new facility. Which you know, again, just to do anything in Gasworks Park is sure. significant. Well, when we started our show, we were talking about just coming to Seattle as children. So Gasworks was definitely one of the. You know, when I was ten years old, driving up from Tacoma, my yeah. hometown, we would oftentimes go to Gasworks Park. It's just incredible fun memories of being there. Um, that east entrance is where those those series of concrete arches are. Mm-hmm. And if you ever go there during the spring, summer, fall, it's the place where everyone gets these wedding photographs. There's always... Yes, <laughs> yes. So what was that? Do you know? Yeah, so those arches held an elevated track and the trains full of coal would back up on that elevated track on top of those arches and then they'd dump the coal into the hoppers because it was a gasification plant, right? So huh. they took the coal 
and then put it through all these horrific processes <laughs> to get to get gas out of it uh-huh. for to power the city. So um, yeah, well, it's a fitting place to kind of begin to wind down our show because we're talking about sustainability and carbon neutrality, and here we are. You know, an old coal energy generation plant is now a public park. Yes, couldn't get greener than that. Um, also, Lake Union, as I is that where the Boeing company started building airplanes? Were there? Do you know? That little red barn of the Boeing Company, was that on Lake Union? I can't say for sure. I, well, I think you might be right. I may be right. I may yeah. be wrong. But I know one thing is that your studio does, um, air, you work on, on airports. Yeah. And kind of like the freeway park, airports have the most intense chi energy that you could ever get, right? The sound, the fuel, the energy and power of these planes coming and going. It's like very discombobulating for humans. Yes, yes. So I'm just um, kind of curious, how do you take into account that landscape, which includes those supersonic transporters in the air as when you design a space? And a lot of these are like places of comfort. Yeah. Know, yeah. So lounge. we've done a lot of work within Seattle Tacoma International Airport and it's it's a city, right? Like it's a city on its own. 17,000 people show up there to work every day and leave every day. And so we've been involved with a lot of small projects there and a lot of big projects there. But um, it's a hard, it's a hard one to reconcile, just because you know airports are, they're energy beasts, and I think even more so than the building itself is what an airplane is and does. And so, certainly a necessity right now of of modern life, but hopefully less so. I think it's good news for Seattle Tacoma International Airport because it was it was overcrowded and bursting at the seams and even with all the expansions they know they can't keep up so if we can figure out how to work remotely and travel even 10% less that's going to um, help a lot of these airports you know basically keep their operations going for another 10 20 years because they won't have to keep expanding but um, you have to get into the technical mindset to to do the airport projects because it's just every inch is some system some (laughs) restricted area you have to get security clearance from cbp and tsa and i've got clearances to get in parts of the airport that even took you know more (laughs) what's like the weirdest part of an airport that no one would ever know even exists well i probably can't tell you about the weirdest part (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let's just say they see everything that's going on in the airport, Fair and that enough. should probably be a comfort okay. to everybody. Okay. Um, I would say that there are, we've designed them actually. There, there are jail cells in airports. You know, it's kind of like uh, what was the joke? Uh, the Philadelphia's uh, Veterans Stadium had a police station and jail in the stadium okay. for the fans <laughs> that got out of hand. Um, yeah, airports have, um, you know, through customs and, and border protection, there's a series of reviews you go through. And the because the, we've designed these spaces, the joke is in the offices, you don't want to go past secondary inspection to the back rooms. Gotcha. Because there are actually places that they can keep you for a while. So we're winding up. I just wanted to sort of share with our audience the project that's going to be published in Architectural Record. And also, what is Architectural Record's significance to the field of architecture? Yeah, so it's the monthly magazine that represents the American architecture profession, although it features projects from around the world. But um, it is held up as, you know, as its name says, it is the publication of record for the architectural profession. So it certainly is um, significant for us to get a project in there. And which project? So Goldendale Observatory. Yeah, exactly. So the observatory 
While it hasn't been able to be fully enjoyed by the public because of the pandemic, uh, we finished it up last year. We were able to do a photo shoot this summer, which corresponded with Neowise Comet. And so we actually have some photos wow. of the comet up behind the building, which was fantastic. Um, but uh, we were able to get the building into some of the awards programs this fall. It won a Seattle AIA Honor Award Program Award. Um, and then most recently, Architectural Record wanted to publish it for their uh, March issue. So, yeah, we've been doing the interviews and getting all the photo rights and everything Fantastic. organized. And I think that the article's written and, uh, you know, a couple things that couldn't happen that typically happen with an article is we didn't get to meet the the editor on site because they're just not they're not traveling right now so you know all things have changed a little bit but but it's 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 going to be great so it'll be out in march and there'll be a digital edition as well as on newsstands well good i want to thank you chris for joining us today i don't think i've ever met anyone as young and as wise and old as you are in many ways so it's what a pleasure to spend time with you and i wish you all the best as you continue your career oh thanks so much edward it was really fun conversation it's always good to see you next time join us for a conversation with christine mahler executive director for the seattle-based washington wildlife and recreation coalition whose mission is to ensure robust funding for Washington's great outdoors through education and advocacy. They've leveraged up over $1.5 billion over the years to make sure that all people in the Pacific Northwest have access to trails, habitat, and working landscapes. So if you love the outdoors as much as Chris, obviously, and myself, you won't want to miss our next podcast. Thank you again for listening to EK on the Go. Subscribe anywhere that you get your podcast. And if there's a place in the Northwest that matters to you and want to share it with us, please get in touch. Until next time, this is Edward Krigsman. Take care. (laughs) 